All right. This week, the Bible study exercise was 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so tonight, we're going to try to finish that. I did a little bit of work this week of what I could. Um, the last, the way it has worked, um, if you've been following along with the Bible study exercises, is, let's see here, what, two weeks ago was Luke 10, 25 to 37. Luke 10, 25 to 37, and that's the parable of the Good Samaritan, which asked the question, who is our neighbor, right? Luke 10, 25, 37, who is our neighbor? Then the week after that was 1 Corinthians 13, which then attempts to answer the question, well, once we identify who our neighbor is, we are supposed to love our neighbor, and what does that love look like? What is love? That's 1 Corinthians 13. Then this week is 1 Timothy well, or this last week was 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8, which then we'll, we'll look at in just a moment. We're going to work on that tonight. And then this coming week, starting today, I introduced the new week of Bible study, is Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, which refers to honoring your neighbor. So, who is your neighbor? Love your neighbor. Um, honor your neighbor. And then 1 Timothy 2 was the study kind of in between these things that still reflect on our responsibility towards our neighbor. And we'll we'll see exactly what that is if you haven't been keeping up. But 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to do a lot of work on this. And uh, well, you're going to be involved in doing most of the work. So hopefully you're ready. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's read it. Everyone ready? 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Verse 2. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. But there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and variety. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Right? 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 8. Now, obviously, in, in the connection with all of the other studies, now you can see how it works. Luke 10, 25 to 37 asks the question, who is, the, who is your neighbor? 1 Corinthians 13, what is your, you are to love your neighbor. What does love look like? 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8 would refer to praying for your neighbor. And in Romans 12, 9 through 21 refers to honoring your neighbor. So we're going to look at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8. We're not going to be able to look at all eight verses tonight, but we're going to look at least the, the first part and really try to break it down. So let's do this. When you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first question I have for you this evening is, do you see something interesting in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, that makes you go, hmm, that, what, I don't know if that makes any sense. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Does anything jump out at you going, wait a minute, that seems odd. Anything. 
Okay, well, we have, um, in 1 Timothy 2, there are, how many, there's, there's a, I guess, well, I've said, oh, three, maybe four, four, I don't, well, I don't know what to call them. We'll call them four things are mentioned in 1 Timothy 2, 1, correct? What's the first one? Supplication. Second? Prayers. Third? Intercessions. Fourth? Giving of thanks. Okay, so we, we have a list of four, but there's something weird about one of the things listed there. Prayers. Because you would see all of these things as a part of prayer. So how can prayer be a part of prayer? Why is it listed as prayer? Why would you just remove that one and say, hey, prayers are to be given to all men, including, and a part of those prayer would be intercession, petition, or supplication, and giving of thanks. It seems weird to include prayer in a list of really the parts of prayer. Because haven't we all been taught that there's how many parts of prayer? Okay, someone says four, someone says five. Obviously, we've not all been taught the same. Oh, okay, so let's go through them. All right, let's go through. What's one part of prayer? Okay. We've got adoration or praise. Okay, adoration or praise. Okay. Okay. So, uh, next, confession. Next. Intercession. Next, petition, okay, or supplication. Do we have another one? And thanksgiving. Right, is that five? Did we miss any? Do everybody agree with those five or someone disagree with those five? Do, do we agree? Right? That's how we're typically taught, right? Now, some may use, I think it's called ACTS, that use the, is it the uh, acronym? Acts, some people use. Some people use, uh, is it the, is it the, uh, where you outline your hand? Okay, and that's the five, right? Okay, right, and then, so each, each finger represents one of the parts of prayer, and that's how you're supposed to remember it. You remember all the little t- techniques that's been taught and how to do so? So, but, and when you look at those parts of prayer, what's one that's not listed? prayer okay so this adds like what what in the world is this now there's been that we could get into lots of discussions on how different people handle this uh but we're going we're going to try to figure that out and try to understand this and see exactly what we're called to do here so let's just take it apart i've already done some of this in the in the podcast but if you haven't heard it then we'll just see if we can get through all of these this evening so 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, right? He, he, he sets this up almost as a list of, as a priority. That this is something that should be first consideration in our life. Now, again, if you go with the way the study has been designed, we have to identify our neighbor, we have to love our neighbor, and now this is going to reference praying for our neighbor. So first of all, prayer is seen here as something of of first importance. But it says, I exhort therefore that first of all, the first word, supplications. King James uses supplications. So that means most people, that's what they are looking at. Stephen, I know, is probably using the NIV, which says, request, request. Hmm. That's an interesting translation, request. All right, let's, if we look at, I'll, I'll look at this translation. They use this term, 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, I then urge that petitions. So we have request, we have petitions, 
We have supplications. What in the world is going on here? Well, you know what we need to do. Grab the Blue Letter Bible app. Let's do a little work on the Greek word that is translated supplications, and we will see what in the world is going on. And I think we'll find, uh, we'll find some interesting things here. All right? So, I exhort, therefore, first of all, supplications. If we open up the interlinear, look up supplications, we find out that it's this Greek word. Strong's G1162. Deasis. 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 Deasis is used 19 times in the King James. 19 times. And guess how it's used 12 times? Prayer. Now, that's weird. It can be translated prayer. That makes 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, even more weird, right? Because you can literally translate it how? Prayers, prayers. Okay, that, that's, that's odd. So why, why is it deasis, a word that can mean prayer, used here? Clearly, the translators realize that they can't just translate it prayer, so they use the word supplication. Is, this, is there something interesting about this word? Well, if we look at, uh, it's also used as supplication six times. One time as a request. All right? If we look up Strong's definition, deasis is a petition, a prayer, a request, supplication. That's not super helpful, is it? Is that, is that helpful? I don't think it's helpful, considering the very next word is what? Prayer, <laughs> right? The very next word is prayer. So how is this different than the next word? Like it's got, there's got to be something here. So th- this is the, the thing that I've been talking about all week, trying to get everyone to work on and to figure out. So we, we find something interesting though, okay? If you look down to Thayer's Greek lexicon, right? You'll notice that number one, two words are used. Everyone see the word need? Now that's interesting, all right? And then the next word. Indigence, right? What is indigence? Indigence or indigent? What, what is it? Does anybody know what it is? Poor or needy. Very good. Someone who's poor or needy. Now, this really takes an interesting approach, right? Okay, the next, the next thing is prayers. So here, we are to offer up supplications. Some may say petitions, but the word here seems to carry the idea of need. Someone with an extreme need. Someone who's in poverty, Someone who's indigent, someone who is in extreme poverty. They don't have anything to offer. Now this becomes, I think, gives us a clue. If you look at the outline for biblical usage in the Blue Letter Bible app, look at the outline, look number one for outline of biblical usage, which they're taking this from Thayer's Greek lexicon. What is it? The first word? Need. Next word? Indigence, next word, want, next word, privation. You see that? 
So what's the emphasis here, at least from the, from the Thayer's Greek lexicon? What's the emphasis here? Someone who is in poverty. Someone who has an extreme need. And then what is our responsibility? First of all, we, right, as the believer, is to take that poverty, that need, and we are to bring it before God. It's, it's not just a request or a petition. It's you're taking someone's need and bringing it before God. That, that has to be the... Like, if we don't draw this distinction, it makes no sense because the next word is prayer, right? And prayer, don't, what do we usually refer to prayer? As petitioning or interceding, correct? So there's got to be a distinction. Did you have something? Okay, very good. That's what we talked about in the podcast this week. That's, a very, that's the question I asked, right? Because on one hand, we could look at this, okay, so what I'm supposed to do, if I see the needs of other people, I take their needs and bring it before God, and we may focus on the physical need. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with focusing on the physical need, but I'm going to challenge that based off the, the context where this verse is found. And here's the reason why. So, 1 Timothy 2, 1. All right. First of all, we are to bring our supplication, our petition, our the need, then pray, then intercede, then give thanks. Everybody see that in verse 1? All right. The next verse says what? We do this for kings, for, for in fact, the, the, all in authority. Basically, we're to do this for all men. And then what's the very next verse? Okay, we may live quiet and peaceable lives. Okay, keep going. For this is a good, so this is good and acceptable. Okay, God, now please note, inside of God, our Savior, now the word Savior shows up, and then the very next verse. Who have all men to be saved. Now immediately the focus here becomes on Spiritual, not physical, spiritual, right? The next verse. One God and one mediator. See that? Next verse. Who gave himself a ransom for all. Everything in the context is about what? Salvation. Yes? So, this is the idea that what Paul is calling you to do is to look at people and see their spiritual poverty, their spiritual need, and then you bring that before God. We have a tendency to see people's physical needs before we see their spiritual needs. Now, on one hand... Now, I, I, I'm, I'm going to challenge you here. Biblically speaking, now I want you to really think about this. Biblically speaking, when we encounter someone with a physical need, what is the biblical model of our responsibility? To meet it. Right? The, the biblical model isn't like, you know, and again, if you go back to this study, the way it's organized, the first one was Luke 10. 
Okay? When, who is my neighbor? Well, what's the answer of the, of the Good Samaritan? Whoever's in need. And did the Good Samaritan go, I'll pray for you. No. In fact, what does James say about when we see, if we just see someone in need and say, you know, may God bless you and I'll pray for you, that's of no value to them, right? That's basically like a dead faith. So biblically speaking, when we encounter someone with a physical need, it's not for us to go run to God and say, God, help them with their physical need. Our job is, what can I do to meet that physical need? What can I do to help, either as an individual or as a church? Right? The church comes together, takes its resources, and tries to help the individual to the best of our ability. That seems to be the biblical model. But what can you and I do for someone's spiritual poverty? Can you fix their spiritual poverty? No. No. Can I fix their spiritual poverty? Can the church fix their spiritual poverty? Who's the only one who can? So what is my responsibility when I see someone's spiritual poverty? To bring it before God. The focus here is on need, on poverty. I love the fact that Thayer's lexicon, the first, the first, look at it again, it's need, and what's the next word? Is it indigent or uh, indigence? I can't remember which one it is in Thayer's lexicon. Okay, that, that's, that's the idea. Someone's extreme poverty. Our job is when we see people, what we have, we have to, before we see their career, before we see their family, before we see their attitude, before we see their dress, before we see their race, their gender, their color, what we are to see is their spiritual poverty. And all of us have some level of spiritual poverty somewhere. We always are missing something spiritually that we need. Every person you know has some spiritual need, yes? Agreed? And so your job is when you see is to immediately take and say, God, here are the spiritual needs of the people I encountered today. And even if you don't know the spiritual need, you know it exists, correct? Everyone has a spiritual need to grow spiritually, to gain better understanding, to help with their struggle with sin, or maybe they need salvation. I think that that's, that's the only way to understand why it says supplications and then prayers right after it, because that would be saying the same thing unless we see these supplications as bringing need, the needs of people, spiritual needs, before the only person who can fix spiritual need. The church can't fix it. You can't fix it. You can't do anything. But you can bring it before God. Does that make sense? All right. So there's supplications. Now, go back to 1 Timothy 2. What's the next word? Prayers. Now, immediately you'll notice something. Is it the same word as supplications? No, it's a different word. Correct? What's the Greek word? The Greek word is this. Strong's G 4335. Pros uhe. Pros uhe. Pros uhe. All right. Pros uhe. I can't make the kind of little guttural sound that he makes there, but pros uhe. 
Now, this is interesting because the other one focused on need, right? Let's, let's look a little bit. Let's look at this. It's used 37 times. 36 times it's translated what? Prayer. Just like the previous Greek word was translated prayer multiple times, right? So that, that in some ways you could, you could almost say that the words are the same, but clearly there's a difference here. The previous one focused on need. What does this one focus on? Well, let's look at it. The Strong's definition means prayer, worship. That's not super helpful, right? Okay. Um, uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon. What's the very first thing in uh, uh, Greek's, uh, if I can speak correctly, Thayer's Greek lexicon? Prayer addressed to God. That's interesting. If we look at the outline of biblical usage, what do we have? What's number one? Prayer addressed to God. A place set apart, suited for the offering of prayer. A synagogue, that's not helpful. A place in the open air where Jews were wont to pray outside the cities where they had no synagogue. Such places were situated upon the bank of stream, the shore of a sea, where there was supply for water, for washing of the hands before prayer. All right, so it can refer to, prosuhei can refer to more of a place, but its emphasis seems to be on what? The idea that it's addressed to God. It's not really referring to what we are praying for. It's the idea, if if we take it in order, we see someone's spiritual need And where do we take the need? To God, not to everyone else. Your responsibility is you see the need and it's to be addressed to God. I will argue that one of the major flaws sometimes within the church is prayer is not so much communication to God as prayer is a religious act in order to be seen and heard by other people. I've talked about it before. Um, I don't remember which school I was in the military, but we had to go to the chow hall at you know the, the military dining facility uh, to eat. And uh, we walked in, and one of the airmen... Now, again, he had... Everything he was probably trying to do was trying to be godly, trying to be holy, but I'll never forget, we walk to the table, everyone sits down getting ready to eat, he in a sense takes his tray, drops it like hard to get everyone's attention, places both hands on the table, Lord God, and then just starts praying out loud over his food. Now, what he was trying to do was, quote-unquote, be a witness and, quote-unquote, let everyone see that he was going to put God first in his life. But guess what his prayer was? Was he addressing God? He was making sure that he was seen. He was making prayer about him. When prayer becomes about you, it's no longer prayer. I mean, we remember the, all the controversy and everyone took strong sides when Tim Tebow would score a touchdown and do this, right? Okay? And then some people in the world hated it. Christians were like, this is the greatest thing ever. He's giving glory to God. Well, do you, do you give glory to God by kneeling down in front of 60,000 people so they can see you? What, what's the correct answer? 
That becomes more about you. Now, I'm not saying his motives were wrong. His motives were probably like, I'm going to try to show that it's about God. But it becomes very subtle when it all of a sudden becomes about you. Because everyone wasn't debating about God. Everyone was debating about Tebow making him the spectacle, making him the story. He became the story. Well, once you become the story, then it's no longer about prayer. Because prayer is about what? Communicating to God. That's why I'm not a big fan as a pastor. And I know most, a lot of pastors do this, and I'm, and I'm not, not trying to criticize. But a lot of times it's like, okay, maybe they'll kind of do the first introduction of the sermon. Or sometimes even before the introduction of the sermon, they say, let us pray, and then the pastor will say something along these lines. Lord God, hide me behind your cross so that the people hear you and they don't hear me. Take control so that every word is your word. Okay, and it's like, well, wait a minute. At that point, is he really asking God for that? Or is he trying to make all the people understand that what he's about to say is basically from God, therefore you can't question him? It's, to me, a manipulative technique. Because guess what? Does does everyone need to hear the pastor pray that God will work through his sermon? Do you need to hear that? Right? I mean, if I'm going to pray for my sermon, when should I be praying for it? Before I get in the pulpit... It's like, you know, okay, God, I need your help now. Okay, hopefully I've been praying all week about it, right? So, and then at the, the prayer at the end. I, I, I do it because it's almost a habit, but so many times when I do it, I regret the fact that I do it because you know what preachers tend to do at the prayer at the end of a sermon? What do we tend to do? Repreach the points of the sermon. And it's almost impossible not to do that because your mind has been working for 45 minutes to an hour, thinking it through, and then all of a sudden you're like, the end. All right, Lord, and then what do you, what's the only thing going through my mind? The sermon. So then it's almost like I'm just re-preaching the sermon. God doesn't need to hear me re-preach the sermon. So why am I praying the points to God? So who am I ultimately praying to? I'm just preaching. I feel bad every time I do that, but I find myself doing it way too many times, and I'm like, what am I doing? Just, but if I don't pray, some people will be like, oh, he didn't pray, because it's on the list, right? Hey, you better start the sermon with a prayer, and you better conclude the sermon with a prayer. You didn't follow the rule book. Okay, right, do what? It, well, it may be, but I think in many cases it's not prayer. That's the point I'm trying to make. What is prayer? Communication with God. I want everyone to write that down. Prayer is communication with God. That's the emphasis of this Greek word, is it not? It is prayer addressed to God. It is prayer addressed to God. The focus here is on who we're talking to, not what we're saying. The first part is what we're bringing, need. But who we bring that need to is God. That's why a lot of times, again, prayer meetings. I, sometimes prayer meetings drive me absolutely crazy because sometimes we, we, everyone gets together, you know, and sometimes you break off in groups and it seems like it's more of an opportunity for us to communicate about other people. Hey, hey I need you to pray for my neighbor because their husband's an alcoholic. Do, do, do we need to know that? 
I know this. God already knows that. And if you already know that, and you've already told God that, is it going to change anything that now two or three other people know that? You see where that becomes questionable, right? So then we're using prayer as an opportunity to communicate things about other people to other people. Well, you don't need to tell other people. Tell God. And sometimes prayer becomes the opportunity to do what? To gossip. Now, I'm not saying it's always wrong to ask someone for prayer. I'm not saying, please hear me out. I'm saying it's, it's, it's a fine line when... Hmm, you know, I, I used to get very upset on Wednesday nights when my church is in Nebraska because I'd be like, okay, so we come to church, I get a 10-minute devotional, 40 minutes of prayer request, right? Because everybody has to go around the circle 18 times with, you know, Aunt, Aunt, you know, Aunt Martha has a broken toe. You know, we got ever, we got to go, everyone's got to go. So we 45 minutes of prayer request, then we pray for 10 minutes. And I'm like, so... We came to church for a 10-minute devotional, 45 minutes of prayer request, and 10 minutes of prayer. I don't really know if that's quite the way. It seems like we spent more time talking than talking to actually talking to God. Now, I know you're like, you're, that's because you're jaded and you're skeptical about everything and you hate everything. I know, I already hear your thoughts and you're like, you know, you just want to hear yourself talk. You don't want to hear anybody else talk. I know all the things you're saying, but I think, I think that there's a little bit of problems with that. Okay, okay. I think there's a little, I think there's a little, I think that's a little misguided, but because it just becomes the way we're supposed to do it, Right? That's just the way we're supposed to do it. I just feel like that so many times we've turned prayer into everything other than actually communicating with God. I couldn't stand in the military when they would be like, hey, we have a uh, a retirement ceremony. Hey, Hammock, we need you to come pray for it. What? And I'm like... And it just feels like that, you know, hey, we have to have a prayer here and we need you to pray. And I'm like... Who am I praying for? Am I praying to God or am I praying for everyone to listen to me? And what I would hate is then afterward, like, that was a really good prayer. I'm like, that's not, no! Okay, I'm, I'm, so I'd think, how can I make it a bad prayer? Right? Because if, if I make it a bad prayer, then I'm accomplishing this. Because it's not supposed to be about you listening. And so much of church, prayer is about people listening. And what's the point of it if it's about you hearing? You don't need to hear my prayer. Do you understand? Do you understand? Like, what does it accomplish for me to go, all right, we're getting ready to pr- uh, preach. So, Lord God, and you, you don't need to hear my prayer. Who, who's the only one who needs to hear my prayer for my sermon? God. Now, I know I, you think I've got a negative approach to it, but I'm sorry. It's, I did not come up with the definition of prayer. Okay, yeah, I know. Or just say, we're done, okay? okay, We're done. I, know, I, I wish I could do it. Now look, I, that, that I'm acknowledging that that's more the flaw of the preacher than it is prayer. It's just, as a preacher, it's hard to just switch immediately over and go, uh, who have I been talking to for 45 minutes or an hour? You. And then all of a sudden I'm supposed to stop and go, hey, never mind, guys. Okay, I'm going to go talk to God now. But I need you to listen to me. It's hard to just all of a sudden you no longer become the audience. God is supposed to be the audience, but it's very easy still to make you the audience. All I'm saying 
is the focus here is that the need is what we, is the thing we bring to God, people's spiritual need, but we are to bring it to God. Does that make sense? All right. So we have, go back to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I exhort, therefore, first of all, supplications. There's the need, right? Poverty. Prayers, we take them directly to God. And then what's the next word? Intercessions. Now, I think everyone thinks they know what that means, right? But at this point, I would question whether we have it right, because the others we probably would have gotten wrong. So let's go look at intercessions and see what we have here. Intercessions is this Greek word. You ready? Strong's G, 1783. Antuxis. Antuxis. All right. Antuxis, if I can say it correctly. All right. It's used how many times? Two times. Okay. And one time it's translated, and the other time, prayer. So in reality, you can say prayer, prayer, prayer. Isn't it weird that all three of these words could be translated prayer? You, we have to make the distinctions here. All right? Okay, and what's the uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon? Does it offer any clues? Well, we'll go to Strong's definition. An interview. That's interesting. Supplication, intercession, prayer. Thayer's Greek lexicon, falling in with, meeting with, an interview, coming together, that for which an interview is held, a conference, a conversation, petition, supplication. If we look at the outline of biblical usage, a falling in with, meeting with, they're going to take it directly from Thayer's Greek lexicon, an interview coming together to visit the converse or for any other cause, that which an interview is held, a conference or conversation. Then it again has petition and supplication. So what's the emphasis here? What, what do you feel that the emphasis is being made for this word? Coming together? A conversation? A meeting? Now, this is interesting, okay? So, first is uh, supplications, right? And we can translate that as what? Need poverty. So I am to perceive the need, uh, the spiritual need and the spiritual poverty of individuals. And then the next word, prayer, I am means I need to take it where? Directly to God. I take it directly to God. And as I take it directly to God, I am to engage in what? A conversation, a meeting, an interview. I am to communicate this to God. See, prayer just focuses on the fact it's directed to God. Here focuses on the fact that it's a communication with God. I'm taking it to God, but I'm communicating it with God. It's like I'm engaged in an interview about what? The need. I am coming to God together. I'm coming together with God to communicate with him about the spiritual need that I have seen, perceive, and understand exists. Does that, does that help at all? 
Okay. It, it is because when we, what do we typically think with intercession? Praying for the needs of others. So this is not co- completely wrong, but this is not really necessarily focused on that. It's focused on more that it's a communication, that it's an interview, that we're literally talking to God about the situation. So supplication focuses on the need. Prayer focuses on who I'm communicating with. And intercession focuses on the fact that I am communicating or having a conversation with God in regards to it. So far, so good? Now we have one more. Giving of thanks. Giving of thanks. Giving of thanks. Giving of thanks is this. Oh, now you should know this word. You should know this word. See if it sounds familiar to you. Maybe if I can get it to play. Okay, we'll go back in. That, uh, that, I'm making it all dramatic here. All right, here we go. All right, maybe not. Let's try that again, okay? All of a sudden, it's like, nope, I, we're not going to play that word for you. We, we are going to refuse and never have problems until here. Okay. Okay. Eucharistia, all right, Eucharistia, okay. Now, does that sound familiar? Eucharist, the Eucharist, and what is the Eucharist? What, what do we sometimes refer to the Eucharist as? The Thanksgiving meal. The, the, true, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper is the true Thanksgiving meal. We are giving thanks. What are we giving thanks for in the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper? For the body and blood of Christ. We're giving thanks. We are remembering and giving thanks for what he has done. So the word Eucharist is where it comes from. Eucharista, that's, that's the, the idea. It's used how many times? Fifteen times, nine times it's translated what? Thanksgiving. Three times giving of thanks, two times thanks, one time thankfulness. This one, there's no confusion in what's being spoken of here. The Strong's definition of Eucharista. Okay. Gratitude. Grateful. Thankfulness. Right? Uh, thank, uh, gra- uh, grateful. Language to God as an act of worship. Thankfulness. Giving of thanks. Thanksgiving. Thayer's Greek lexicon. Thankfulness, the outline of biblical usage, thankfulness, the giving of thanks. This one, there's no, que- there's no problem here. All right? So, let's go through this. The first one is sometimes translated supplications or petitions, and it simply means what? Need. Poverty. Just, you can just put those words. And we believe that in the context, this is speaking of spiritual need or spiritual poverty, Right? That's the whole emphasis, all right? So we see the need. You perceive the need in someone. You perceive the poverty. You take that need, and where do you take it directly to? God, and that's the next word, prayers, right? That what's the focus on prayers? It's not what's being said, but who you are speaking to. You are to take it to God. This is not for you to tell other people. This is not about you speaking so that you can be heard or that you can be seen, but you take it directly to God. 
And Jesus condemned the Pharisees for their act of praying to be seen by men. We're supposed to really go into our closet and bring our requests before God. In this particular case, bringing the need. Then the next word, which is translated intercession, focuses on what? It's a conversation. It's a communication. It's an interview. Right? So we take it to God. Now this means I communicate it to God in a meaningful way. I'm using words. I'm talking to God about the situation. Then I conclude with what? The giving of thanks. Now what am I thanking for? What do you think I'm thanking him for? Well, look at the context of the chapter. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. It seems the emphasis here is we are thankful that God is the one who can meet spiritual need through the offering up of Jesus Christ. Eucharista is always a focus on giving thanks, and the Eucharist is giving thanks for what? The sacrifice of Jesus. So guess what? I can end by giving thanks, and why can I give thanks? Because there are, do we know that people have a spiritual need? Yes, we know that we are to take that directly to God. I can communicate to God about that spiritual need, and then why can I give thanks? Because he's the only one who can meet that spiritual need. So if you put it all together, it paints a very beautiful picture, does it not? And it's a very different than the way that's typically preached or the way it's typically explained. So, let's go back through. Let's go back through every one, all right? So, I exhort, therefore, the first of all, supplications. Supplications, right? Supplications was this Greek word. Everybody remember it? Strong's G 1162. Deasis. 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 Everybody got that? And the focus is on need, indigence, poverty. So far, so good. All right, so first of all, supplication. Next, prayers. Prayers was this Greek word. Everybody remember it? Strong's G 4335. Pras Prasuhe. Prasuhe. Everybody got that? And what's the focus on prasuhe? It's addressed to God. That I'm speaking to God. I'm not speaking for anybody else. And then next, intercessions, was this Greek word. Strong's G, 1783. Antuxes. 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 And what's the focus here? It's a meeting with, it's an interview, it's a coming together. I'm coming together with God to present what? The needs, the spiritual need, the spiritual poverty. And then the last one is giving thanks to all men, which I don't think it will play, but we know what it is. Okay, Eucharista, right? Eucharista. And what's the focus here? Giving of thanks. Giving of thanks. Now, go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I, 
first of all, a, a, a first priority in your life is to see the spiritual needs in other people, bring them directly to God, meet with God, communicate with God about those spiritual needs and, and that spiritual poverty, and then you thank God that he is the one who can meet that spiritual need, and you do all of those things for whom? All men. Everyone. Everyone. Now, it's easy to say everyone, right? It's easy to say everyone. Is it always easy to do those things on the behalf of everyone? It is not easy to always do it on the behalf of everyone. When do we... I'm sorry, go ahead. Our flesh definitely fails us because we don't like to do it for whom? Okay, we don't like to do it for our enemies. We don't like to do it for people who hurt us, who use us, who gossip, slander. We don't like to do it. And what I love, for, what I love from this is it's, it's almost to me fascinating because right after he says, do these things for all men, the very next verse mentions what kind of people? Kings and authority. Kings and authority. Now, if you go back to biblical times, if you really go to any times, where do Christians sometimes find ourselves at odds with whom? Authority. Now, we find ourselves at odds with authority, sometimes because of our own just personal preferences and likes and attitudes. But we sometimes can definitely find ourselves in conflict with kings and authority because we hold to a belief system and a way of thinking that is in opposition in many cases to the kings and authority of those on earth. And depending on the kind of country you live in, on one hand, you shouldn't be surprised, right? Because look, here's your, oper- here's your choices for government, government, right? You can off work and operate under some form of a theocracy, okay? And that usually doesn't work out so well, does it? Okay, a lot of people are going to usually end up dying. You can work in some kind of monarchy where you have a king, a, 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 a basically a sovereign who makes the rules and guess where you get? You get no say-so. You get no say-so. That works great if you agree with the monarchy. It doesn't work so great if you disagree with the monarchy, or you come into kind of a representative government, right? Some form of a democracy or a representative republic where the government is supposedly by the people, for the people. That sounds good, but many Christians don't really like that system because guess what that system looks like? It's going to be pluralistic, is it not? Because that, those people who make up the government who, for the people, by the people, are all of them believers? No. Should they all be forced to live like a believer? Some Christians say yes, which again is all great until your form of Christianity loses power. And then guess what? Now you're going to be persecuted. But in a pluralistic way, what we want, what we should want as Christians is, yeah, you've got to represent 
the people from different walks of life, different religions, no religion, they've got to be represented and they have to be treated in a fair way. What we should want is what? That that government does what as far as we are concerned? Leaves us alone. So that we can do what? Worship and preach the truth and offer the truth to everyone. I don't want the government to force those people to live like Christians. I have to say this because for somehow in the current climate, evangelicals are losing their minds. Let me remind you of the way the Great Commission works, right? Matthew 28. First, what's the first part of the Great Commission? Go and teach. Now, we know what that teaching is. That's evangelism. How do we know? Because what's the next part? Baptism. So you evangelize, and then after they receive, then what? Then you baptize. That brings them into the church. And then what are you to do? The third thing, teach. And what do you teach? To obey. When do you teach people to obey? After conversion, not before conversion. And we've got a Christianity today that's like, no, those people out there do it wrong. Bring in the government. Force them to do what Christians want them to do. That's not the way it's ever designed to be. Because if you can force them to live like a Christian, then they can take over and force you to live like an atheist. Or force you to live like a Muslim. Or force you to live like a Satanist. Or for, and you would get upset and go, it's attack upon my religious liberty. Well, what about everyone else's liberty? The freedoms you want to take from others are freedoms you take away from yourself. The freedoms you want are the freedoms you have to give. So I find it funny that this is immediately like, pray for Everyone, including those leaders, you may find yourself in opposition with. And why does it say to pray for them? That maybe we can live a peaceable life. In other words, what are we praying for? That they would leave us alone. That we can live a quiet, peaceable life. To do what? That we can follow godliness, that we can practice Christianity, and that we can proclaim it to others. We want to offer it to others. I don't want the government's help enforcing it on others. Now, they would have never even considered the government's help in trying to force it on others. They never would have considered. What were they worried about? The government killing them. We've gone from worrying about the government killing us to now we want the government to impose Christianity on everyone. It's not my job to impose Christianity on anyone. That's the last thing we want. And why? Why can you not impose on anyone? Salvation. You can impose morality, but whenever morality is imposed upon an unregenerate heart, the unregenerate heart always does what? Rises up and fights against it. I'll give you any, I, I could bring in the news stories. We, I think it was just Kansas who rejected many of the rules on abortion because the voters rejected it. So Roe v. Wade gets turned over to the states. Christians were like, that's it. We defeated abortion. We've did it. 
And now, guess what many Republicans are doing? They're backing away from abortion because guess what they're finding out in their districts? People want it. So guess what? Unless you change hearts and you change minds, no matter what rules you put into place, what will ultimately happen? The people will ultimately get what they want. They will ultimately get what they want. You can pass all the rules all day and yell and scream about maybe LGBTQ and go, I want all of these rules. You can try to impose the rules, but if, the, if you don't change the hearts, they will ultimately get what? Exactly what they want. You may be able to slow it down. You may try to push back against it, but all it does is create hostility towards you because they're like, you're cramming your religion down my throat. I don't want to cram my religion down my throat. What do I want to do? Proclaim my religion. Okay? All, all, all I want to do is say, here is the, the word of God. Here is a different way of thinking. Now, guess what I know? Can I fix that spiritual poverty? No, the whole point of this passage is, I'm to take that spiritual poverty to whom? God. And say, Lord, change hearts, change minds. My job is to proclaim the truth. And then guess what my attitude is? I am to pray for all people, whether I agree or disagree. We spend more time talking about the political leaders than we do praying for the political leaders. We spend more time complaining about how they don't agree with us instead of praying that God would change them to become one of us. Because what's easier to do? To complain. It takes a lot more time to do what? I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to bring their spiritual need before a holy God. That's not as easy to do. It's not as much fun, is it? It's not as much fun. I've talked about it so many times that, again, I I always bring it up as the example, but if you listen to American Family Radio, which is, you know, a major Christian radio network all across the United States of America, it's right here in Abilene, Texas, you start listening to them about 10 o'clock in the morning, from 10 in the morning to 6 p.m., Monday through Friday, that period of time, when you listen to them all day, you may walk away going, am I listening to Christian radio or am I just listening to, to, to the Republican Party? Because all it is is politics, 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 politics. And then they, they will make their, they'll mock Joe Biden's mental ability. They mock him. They call him names. They call Pelosi names. They call the vice president names. And they think they're so cool. And they're so, and there's nothing godly about any of it. It's just not, it's political nonsense disguised as Christianity where they're rude and derogatory to human beings who they should be praying for instead of talking against. Now, by no means am I saying do you have to say we agree with every concept, but you deal with the concept, right? Hey, here's this concept. We disagree with it. Now, you may disagree with it, but what's their solution? Their solution is we got to get the right people voted in office. We got to vote the wrong people out. We got to pass some laws. We got to pass some bills. We got to protest Disney. We got to cancel this. We got to silence this. And it's like none of that is what we're called to do in Scripture. Is there anywhere in the New Testament called to protest, boycott, silence, cancel, censor? None of that's anywhere. Did Paul say, hey guys, that Roman government is an absolute train wreck. You need to protest it, boycott it, cancel your subscriptions. We're going to teach them a lesson. Do you see that anywhere in the New Testament? 
No. What has it called them to do? Pray, obey, and live out their lives in a godly way. That doesn't mean you agree with it? No. But you deal with the concept. And how do we deal with a concept? Here's what the world teaches. Here's what the word of God teaches. So as a believer, this is what we are to pursue. What do I say to the unbeliever? I don't worry about that issue. They need what? Salvation. So many times we look at lost people and we see people that we want their behavior to change. We don't care about changing their behavior. They need salvation. Salvation is the process. Well, salvation is instantaneous, but sanctification, a process which over time will change their behavior. But what should, what, what should change their behavior? Their salvation, not by me arguing or trying to win some political battle on Facebook. That's not, trying to win the culture war has never changed anyone. When Christians get mad because I went to Target and they called it a holiday tree. They didn't call it a Christmas tree. <laughs> they, they hate Christianity. I'm never going back to Target until they call it a Christmas tree. Really? You're worried because they don't call it a Christmas tree. Really? Why do you care? Do they have to celebrate Christmas? No. <laughs> they don't. Ha- I know it's a shock. They don't have to. And you know what? I don't care if they say Merry Christmas to me. I could care less. You know what I want? The product, hopefully at a decent price, right? And I don't know, maybe somewhat decent customer service. I don't care if they say Merry Christmas or they don't say a word. But Christians like, that's, that's an attack upon Christianity. What? Anti-Christian, right. But, but, but it's this weird thing that we always want everyone to be like us and to think like us and act like us and believe like us. We live in a pluralistic society. I'm glad that we don't, uh, they're, they're not forced to do that. Or Christianity becomes a state religion. And do you want Christianity to be a state religion? You can say, yes, I do. It would bring back morality until you wake up one day and Catholics are in charge and you're a Protestant and you're killed for being a Protestant. Then you'll be like, this was a horrible idea. yes. It's always been a horrible idea for 2,000 years of church history. Every time the church and state merge, who? Someone's going to die. Our job is to proclaim the truth, preach the truth, try to live the truth as messy as we do, and then what we are to do is to see the spiritual need in people, bring it directly to God, have a time of communication with God about that spiritual need and then give thanks to God for the fact that he can meet that spiritual need and we are to do that for every person. Whether we agree or disagree and we are to do it specifically for those in authority. That is our approach. And that's what the text literally says. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness 
and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So, you can ask yourself tonight a very simple question. Do you see spiritual need and poverty? Do you bring it directly to God? Do you communicate with God about that spiritual poverty? Do you give thanks to God for the one who can meet that? And do you do those things for all men? Only you know how much time you spend doing these things, and you only you know who you do it for. I don't know, don't want to know, but I know it's what we're called to do. Any questions? Pretty straightforward? To me, to me I guess to me, the fun, funnest part of this whole study this week was so many of those phrases I would not have thought of, oh, that's need, and wait, prayer, that's just talking to God. Wait, intercession, that's more of a communication. Like, giving thanks is the only one I probably would have had, had, had right before the study. After the study, I realized I had a lot of those concepts a little bit wrong. All right, we're just going to stop. I'm not going to pray because I know exactly what I'll do right now. What will I do? I will explain those things again in my prayer, which means I wouldn't actually be communicating with God. I would still be talking to who? You guys, hoping that maybe if that last one minute, you'll finally get the point. Maybe like, okay, there, there you go. I know I haven't explained it enough. One more time. And then maybe you'll go like, okay, look, I didn't hear anything you said for 59 minutes. But when you said that prayer, I got it. Okay, so I'm not going to do that because it really does. You don't understand how much it does bother me because I will leave and go. Or I'll hear the prayer on the recording going, I wasn't praying to God. And I'll be like, what was I doing? I wish I could do it the right way. I'll, I'll, when I figure it out, you'll be the first to know, okay? Okay? When I'm just, I'm just going to walk away and go, where is he going? He's going outside. Okay? You'll just have to listen on the microphone. I'm going to be talking to God out there. Maybe I would do a better job of actually talking to him and not talking to you. All right. But there we go. So that's the study, Romans 12 for, for this week. And I did the introduction of that uh, earlier today. All right.